Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. And welcome aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod. This is the podcast for the ultimate escapism and distraction from everyday life. I'm Anna Deming, Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, our Podcast Editor. And I'm Timothy Revel, our Comment and Culture Editor. So this week's theme is escape. Escape. However did you come up with that one? (laughs) Yeah, very subtle this week. (laughs) Um, So... For this theme, I'm going to be talking about some of my favourite ways that animals can escape their predators. And I'll be talking about how we can escape the gravity of our planet. And I'll be escaping down into the depths of the ocean. And remember, you can get the ultimate escapism with a discount subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com forward slash escape 20. Okay, so insects. Now, listen to this incredible explosion (laughs) 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 incredible incredible well that was the noise uh if you heard it or not of hydrogen peroxide reacting with hydroquinone and exploding oh yeah obviously yeah well you know you should know that it's a (laughs) it's a chemical explosion and so the noise that you probably didn't hear was made by a bombardier beetle uh, should we play that again? Uh, it's not much better the second time. <laughs> Isn't there a story about Darwin and one of these beetles? Yes. Yeah. Um, in When Darwin was a young man and an avid beetle collector, he uh, there's a story about him having a, a couple of beetles in his hands and he spotted another one that he was really after. So he popped one of them that he was holding in his mouth so that he could grab the other. And the thing exploded in his mouth and squirted all this acid into his into his mouth. Oh, that's, that's gross. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's why you don't put beetles in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the many good reasons. Well, you know, normally it's a good. You know, entomologists um, quite can often store things in their mouths, just holding them in their mouth. Um, Darwin said, "I gently seized one of the karabi between my teeth, when, to my unspeakable disgust and pain." The little inconsiderate beast squirted its acid down my throat. <laughs> oh, so I guess the little inconsiderate beast escaped at that point, did it? Uh, yeah, it did. Uh, and that's what it was trying to do. I mean, it's not too inconsiderate. It was, tr- you know, it found itself in someone's mouth. Um, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> Fair enough. It's yeah. good to get the beetle perspective in. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so these beetles are really cool. They've got these little sacs in the abdomen and one of the sacs contains hydrogen peroxide and the other one contains hydroquinone. And when they're attacked or when a, a naturalist puts them in their mouth, uh, the beetles mix the two sacs in a special reaction chamber and it goes bang 
uh, and it squirts hot acid out the backside and get to 100 degrees Celsius. Whoa. Oh, good grief. Yeah, so I, I love thinking, you know, the, the evolution of these things is incredible, isn't it? I mean, the reaction chamber is especially separate protected part of the insect so it doesn't damage it um, as the chemicals are mixed and some beetles can direct the spray as well like so they squirt it at a predator directly into its face and that either startles it or disgusts it into running away or makes it drop or spit it out like darwin and that beetle that we played a clip of that you may or may not have heard, that's a Japanese bombardier beetle. And the one of its biggest predators is a toad. And uh, there's some great footage of a toad. Great, great if you like seeing a toad retching. Which I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise it. I like to search on YouTube for. Well, I know. I'll, I'll post a link on um, on our Twitter feed at New Scientist Pod because, you know, I actually really like this clip. So the toad... Uh, slurps up one of these beetles and then a little while later it starts gagging and uh, and out comes the beetle. So, you know, the beetle has squirted its acid into the toad's stomach and uh, and it's innate and the toad goes, oh my God, what was that? <laughs> you know, that was bad. And uh, it spits out the, t- the beetle. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah. Is that all you have for us or is there more? <laughs> well, you'll, well, you'll be pleased to know. I've got more. Um, yeah, one more bit. <laughs> There's another bit of chemical warfare that I really like. It's from cabbage aphids. And I know we're not supposed to like aphids. You know, they eat our crops and our flowers. But I like this because it's a story about the underdog, um, you know, the under aphid that, uh, you know, a normally despised animal that's got a, a lovely secret story. And the story with this one is that the diet of cabbage aphids is rich in glucosinolates. These chemicals are from the nutrient transport vessels of the plant that it eats and the aphid stores them in its blood and it also has an enzyme called myrosinase if the aphid gets attacked say by a ladybird the enzyme that's in the muscle mixes with the glycosinolate in the blood and it makes mustard gas oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty bad just from eating it, cabbages no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not so it doesn't make an explosion but it does make a really <laughs> horrible taste and Whoa. uh the entomologist I spoke to said it, it would be a bit like us biting into a, a raw Brussels sprout, uh, which I haven't done, but I can imagine it's quite a nasty thing. So when, when these aphids are attacked by, say, a ladybird, do they survive because of this or no. how does it end? <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> they don't survive. Um, but that's the kind of bit of the story that I also like is that an individual aphid that gets bitten is going to die, but it that would repel the predator. Um, so it's it's basically sacrificing itself for the good of its friends. Um, and because aphids are mostly living in clonal colonies, all of the mates around it are, are clones. So it's uh, from an evolutionary point of view, it's totally worth dying if you're a clone, if you're going to save more of your clones because you're saving genes that are in your clones. So I, I like that because I, I guess it gives you empathy for your enemies. I mean, I still want that aphids to be eaten up the ones that are on my apple tree but i like having a bit of empathy for the the little aphid there nice to be able to root for both sides yeah exactly (laughs) so what have you got anna well a couple of weeks ago i was talking about mass and the gravitational attraction that keeps celestial bodies going where they're going and the same gravitational force that keeps us grounded to the earth as it goes hurtling through space and 
keeps the air around us and the atmosphere and its lofty embrace of the earth and generally keeps us totally oblivious to the reality that the whole shebang is moving at all. Well, while a massive gravitational hug might be a nice way of thinking about it, a lot of brains and resources have been committed to projects just trying to escape all that space travel. Yeah. Yeah. So traditionally, the bit that got all the attention was the big wow rockets and astronauts and stuff. But thanks to some great popular science stuff lately, the maths is now getting some of the glory it deserves too. Hooray for maths. Yeah. You might. Don't often say that. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't normally make the cut. Yeah, it doesn't often outshine an astronaut. It might might still not make the cut. So why is the mass so glorious? Well, it starts off pretty simple. So you could think of chucking a ball in the air. It goes up and down. Wow, how to take this one out of rocket science. <laughs> but bear with me. So Earth's gravity is tugging on the ball as it sails up and then gradually decelerating it until eventually it's robbed all of, all of its velocity and comes hurtling back down again. But that gravitational pull is getting less and less the further from the Earth's surface the ball is getting. So if you could whack it up hard enough, the gravitational pull would be weakened eventually to become so insignificant that it will never decelerate the ball enough to bring it down. So the ball would reach escape velocity. Yay. (laughs) At that point, it will just keep on going through space forever or until it gets caught up in the gravitational pull of something else. Okay, so quite easy then to get to escape velocity. Well, yeah, so it doesn't sound so complicated so far, but you've got to bear in mind that we're not talking about balls. <laughs> not going to lob a ball up into uh, space. We're talking space travel and rockets with boosters. And they're not necessarily going straight up. They're navigating into different orbits, either either the Earth's or the Moon's or whatever. So if you're thinking orbits, it, at that point, it, you might want to be start thinking about the, throwing the ball forwards as well as upwards. Then instead of having a, the bowl take a path that's going straight up and down, it's going to trace out like a hump or a hill. Um, in mass, yeah. So in mass, that's a parabola. That's because it's, it's always going forward. There's no force acting against it going forward. There's a little bit of air resistance or whatever. But essentially, there's nothing stopping it going forward. It, but there's just the gravitational pull pulling it down so it goes up and down. Eventually, it's a, if you factor in the curvature of the Earth and make the parabola long enough then as the ball is falling back down, it will never actually get close again to the surface because the surface is curving away at the same time. So that's how you get it going into orbit. And then when something misses orbit, the Earth's surface is actually falling away faster than the object is falling to Earth. And and then you get a different shape called a hyperbola and the object manages to escape the Earth's pull after all. So from that, you can see where the term hyperbole comes from when someone's arguments are no longer grounded. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow, I love that. I never knew that. Hyperbole is a mathematical term. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Everyday language all the time. <laughs> but anyway, so you've got this changing gravitational field. Add to that the Earth isn't actually round it bulges in the middle and then you've got the rocket's boosters it doesn't just power off the earth and then freestyle there's extra acceleration coming from them all the time so in, in reality actually rockets can escape earth's pull without re- ever reaching escape velocity because they can keep accelerating with their rocket boosters but this all adds into the math that you've got to try and uh, factor in and calculate what's going on and then there's all these orbits that things get caught up in. So actually, the first object to reach escape velocity was an accident. (laughs) So Luna 1 was an early Russian spacecraft, which was supposed to land on the moon, but apparently missed by 5,900 kilometers, which is pretty Uh, much as bad as it sounds. (laughs) That's like three times the radius of the moon that it was aiming for. Whoops. Yeah, apparently there was some ground-based control error in the upper rocket burn time. Anyway, it wasn't, wasn't there a dog? Wasn't there a dog flying it or something at the time? Uh, maybe a clone <laughs> dog or something. <laughs> but um, it wasn't a total failure anyway, because it found itself into an orbit around the sun in a heliocentric orbit, and became the first artificial planet. And they renamed it Mechta, which is Russian for dream. Mm. Uh, nice way to save a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so with all that going on, the maths is all differential equations, and it gets pretty bonkers, but. Someone undaunted by that maths and undaunted by a lot of stuff, really, that she had to deal with as a black woman in 1950s America. My favourite maths star and my daughter's, Catherine Johnson. Absolute star against all that. So she was doing these obscenely complicated sums for NASA or the, it was actually the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics at the time. And she was doing that back when computers were actually people doing calculations. (laughs) (laughs) And she was so good at her stuff that when John Glenn was being launched off the face of the earth in a rocket that would only get him home safely if the maths was right and they'd got some newfangled electronic computer crunching out the numbers by then. And understandably, he was nervous. And the story goes, he said, call her. And if she says the computer's right, I'll take it. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And I, I just heard her name the other day because um, the last resupply mission that's just gone to the International Space Station uh, arrived last week was called the, the Catherine Johnson. And one of the things it was carrying up there was uh, a supercomputer. So that's nicely appropriate. Yeah, but it wasn't as good as her, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, Tim, what have you got? Well, so I've been looking into free divers this week. So people who can swim down into the um, sea or underwater on a single breath. Um, Yeah, it's it's really, really competitive sport. But it's also for the people involved, it seems to be a real form of escapism. So I was looking at James Nestor's book called Deep about it. And he wrote, in a world of 7 billion people where every inch of land has been mapped, much of it developed and too much of it destroyed, the sea remains the final unseen, untouched and undiscovered wilderness. The planet's last great frontier. All the stress, noise and distractions of life are left at the surface. 
I think that sort of really sums it up. And if you know that doesn't make you want to fill up your bathtub and get training for a free dive, I don't know what will. <laughs> Have you ever um, tried to hold your breath for a free dive? Well, I wouldn't quite describe what I've tried as free diving, but I have, you know, <laughs> swum down in in the sea as far as I can, or a bit of snorkeling. How have you? Yeah, I, well, same as you, you know, just just as an amateur way, but I love doing it as well. Just going down and holding onto a rock as deep as you can get, yeah. and and just relaxing down there for a few seconds. Yeah, well, it's it's really amazing, sort of biologically speaking. So water is eight hundred times heavier than air. So that means if you swim down to just ten meters. The pressure on you is two atmospheres, which is twice that what it would be on land. So for 20 meters, it's three atmospheres and so on. And like free divers, they go down to 100 meters. So it's really extreme pressures involved. But most of your body is water, so it can't really be compressed. But like your lungs, for example, are filled with air. So when you swim down for each additional atmosphere of pressure that you get, your lungs collapse in size by roughly half. Yeah. So in in fact, like the reduction is so much that eventually your lungs no longer become buoyant. And so free divers, they get to a point when they actually just start sinking. They no longer need to swim down. The buoyancy has completely gone and they can just sort of shoot down to really low depths. Wow. I think that would freak me out, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think that's quite scary. I mean, they absolutely love it, but I think that, that would be the point where I would start yeah, I, I, and yeah. drown. I, yeah. <laughs> But there, so there's all sorts of other things the body does. So there's this thing called the mammalian diving reflex, which you know all mammals have. And when you hold your breath and your nostrils get wet, it really kicks into action. So one of the things that happens is your heart rate slows down. So like for the average person who's gone out for a snorkel, it slows down by about 10 to 30%. But for free divers, they have practiced so much that they can slow down their heart rate to about 14 beats per minute. Wow. Um, yeah, it's really impressive. And then the, the body at the same time starts to focus all of your blood pressure or outside of your limbs and onto your heart, brain and lungs and all the important parts to make sure that they're getting enough oxygen. And then there's also like a, I was really surprised when I found this out that the spleen actually comes in use when you're free diving. It's like the only, you literally don't need your spleen um, because the liver, co- I mean, the liver covers you in every situation apart from when you're free diving where it has this surprising little use. So a lot of blood flows through the spleen, meaning that it sort of acts as a reservoir. So when you're diving really deep, a lot of this blood is then redirected elsewhere into your body. So if you don't have a spleen, that's sort of an extra boost that you can't get. So how deep have people managed to go? Yeah, so there are lots of different variations of like free diving. But one of the competitions is just you swim down as far as you can. And the record for men is 130 meters and for women is 114 meters. And that one was broken um, last year. But there's also this extreme, even more extreme version of free diving called no limits free diving, where you basically get strapped to a heavy sled, which is attached to a rope, and then you plummet to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, yeah, I've um, seen that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely not relaxing nuts. anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the world record for that is held by a guy called Herbert Nitsch, and it's 250 meters he went down, which is sort of like two football pitches end to end down into the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, that's terrifying. It's making my heart race just thinking of this. (laughs) Yeah, it is really terrifying. Like the sort of other option that people do. So when you're free diving, you need to worry less about things like decompression sickness because you're not breathing anything under um, pressure. But um, obviously people try similar things with scuba diving where they try to go as deep as they can. But with scuba diving, it's like it's a real endurance sport. It's like a marathon because like these free dives, they take a few minutes. But like the world record for scuba diving was someone went to 332 meters down in the Red Sea. 
and it took them 12 minutes to get to that depth. But then to avoid decompression sickness, it took them 15 hours to get back up to the surface. <laughs> oh, gosh. Which is just like, you know, if, it's, if you get to that, that depth in 12 minutes, probably it's so much like adrenaline rush that you're sort of thinking it'll all be fine. Imagine them taking 15 hours to go back to yeah. the surface. It's really like a test of your mental resolve, I think. Yeah, you definitely enjoy what you had down there. <laughs> yeah, you know, bring a book. <laughs> Well, th- thanks. Um, I, this uh, episode didn't quite pan out as I thought. You know, it, it's my fault. I had a uh, retching toads, and now we've got like <laughs> terrifying depths, and you know, rockets exploding. Uh, <laughs> well, let, we better wrap it up. That's all for this week's escape pod. I hope you're feeling relaxed. We'll be back next week. Do subscribe and tell everyone about the escape pod, and get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and tell us what escape themes you'd like us to explore. And remember, once more, you can get that discount subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash escape20. That's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 